everyone would have wanted to go pull the trigger on this one. Not only because it's cool to kill a balloon, but honestly, I think every red-blooded fighter pilot was offended by the fact that we allowed China to go through our airspace. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian, later in the program, an expert on long-endurance UAVs and the tricks involved in shooting down difficult targets, Air Power Scholar and F-16 pilot Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And we'll have the week's headlines in Global Air Power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace, from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine. GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn more about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and as we mentioned, GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And check out our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the resonant and well-modulated Mr. Vago Maradian. <laughs> JJ, thanks very much. Uh, I always get a kick out of that introduction. Uh, start us off with some news of the week on All Wings Considered. Vago, this week in Air Power, the United States Air Force redefines Chinese takeout. We'll have a lot more with this week's guest on how it went down, down, and away for Beijing's beautiful balloon, what does $1 buy you? A lottery ticket? A pocket full of root beer barrels? How about two medium-altitude long-endurance RPAs? The Wall Street Journal reports, and the company has confirmed, that General Atomics has offered Ukraine two Reapers the company uses for training for a dollar and is throwing in a ground station and training. They've asked the U.S. government to approve the sale. Something the United States Marine Corps, Air Force, and Navy all have in common their high-time V-22 Ospreys are being grounded for random clutch engagements. After a meeting between Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, the RAF has started accepting Ukrainian fighter pilots to its jet training program. What jets will they fly afterward? We don't know yet, but you might want to refer back to our conversation last week with General Gus Guastella, who had a lot to say about air power in Ukraine. You can find that on your podcast app. Also in the UK, Flight Global reports that the British Army's newly acquired fleet of Airbus H-125 medium-twin helicopters is going straight from the delivery dock to the boneyard, with no operational service in between. Is there some chance they could turn up later with Ukrainian roundels? Watch this space. On the other hand, Japan is turning bearish on helicopters. They decided this week to get entirely out of the attack and scout helicopter businesses in favor of remotely piloted aircraft. That's this week's headlines in Global Air Power. Bago, which of those would you like to go deeper on? 
<laughs> I, I, I think there are uh, a lot of uh, angles uh, that we can go to. So let me just uh, bring our uh, guest aboard uh, for uh, this uh, conversation, Heather Penny of uh, the Mitchell Institute uh, for uh, Aerospace Power Studies, uh, or Aerospace Studies is your formal name. Uh, Heather, uh, welcome aboard. Great to have you on the program. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much. And if I may, I'd also like to pitch our podcast, The Aerospace Advantage. Uh, indeed, uh, a must for anybody uh, interested uh, in air power as well. I want to get to, uh, right, I mean, the big story about the balloon, or as JJ put it, Chinese uh, takeout. Um, artfully, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> art, artfully done. And let me, I just wanted to quickly get your take on the air power for, for Ukraine uh, elements of this. And I know that uh, JJ's uh, got a question uh, as well. We you know, heard uh, from Gus uh, last week uh, on the combat air power thing, but but just really quickly to go to uh, the General Atomics proposal, right? I mean, it's for uh, two of the company's airplanes. There's a ground station that's included uh, in that. I mean, obviously, you know, because it's coming from the company, the shipment costs and et cetera would have to be borne by Ukraine and, and obviously the operating costs, and that would be, would be true for uh, anybody. Um, uh, General Atomics is also throwing in the training. More than that, there's been a big debate about whether the kind of air power that we ought to be sending uh, to the Ukrainians, there's been a lot of focus on how effective by Rockstars and other unmanned systems have been. Right. I mean, the United States Air Force, Heather, has 100 of these mm -hmm. uh, MQ-9s uh, in the boneyard. Mm -hmm. It's got ground stations and spares and can give training. And all they have to do is put those airplanes in coffins and send them over there. What are, what are the merits of operating uh, the MQ-9 uh, or, or any other aircraft of that type uh, in, in Ukraine uh, at the moment at a time when Kiev needs as much air power as possible. Well, Vago, I think you just said exactly the main reason. Kiev needs the as much air power as possible. We've seen them use the, the Bayoktars in really innovative and kind of ingenious kind of ways. They have been experimenting in the battle space and they've used them very effectively. But we also know that right now, uh, that a lot of those uh, unmanned vehicles, whether or not they're the small quadcopters or the bioctars, uh, that they've got a limited lifespan, not because of anything inherent to the unmanned aircraft, but simply because given the nature of the conflict, they're experiencing a tremendous amount of attrition. So we need to feed the fight and we need to feed the fight with more capable platforms. And I mean, since we've got these um, MQ-9s, why not send them over? We have gray eagles, we should send them over not only to really empower the Ukrainians to be more effective in the battle space, also to see how they innovate, what they do that's, um, that to solve those operational problem sets, how they use them in ways that are different than the way that we have used them over the past 20 years in, in the Middle East. But then also, because frankly, given the rates of attrition that we've seen, the main challenges that we're seeing for Ukraine versus Russia right now is Russia can sustain their losses they can continue to feed the people and, and equipment into the meat grinder and Ukraine cannot. They have limited resources. They've got a smaller population. And so we need to do everything we possibly can to support Ukraine to bring this war to a close as soon as possible. And air power is the way to do that. As mentioned in the headlines, we've seen the meeting between President Zelensky and the British Prime Minister result in Ukrainian pilots taking jet training in the UK, probably a few months later than might have been optimal. But how do you extend that air power argument to inhabited aircraft? Should we be sending more fighters that way? 
Yeah, a few months late, I would say we're about a year late to, uh, to this, right? Um, if we had started training their pilots and training some of their population a year ago, I think we'd be in a much different place. Um, that's one of the frustrations that, that I've seen um, is that, that we've allowed this to be a two-dimensional land conflict. And if you've, you've seen and followed anything regarding the air denial argument, really all that does is by keeping the conflict in that two-dimensional land space, if you like attrition and atrocity, if you like wars that look and feel and smell like World War I and trench warfare, if you like 10 kilometers a week, then by all means, don't use air power. But I don't think any of us have those values. So we need to be sending them as much air power as possible. I'm grateful that the UK is going to be training Ukrainian pilots. What kinds of aircraft should they fly? All of them. <laughs> Whatever we can provide is really what we should, what we should empower them with, right? Um, you know, when it comes to like, for example, F-16s, I understand that there are a lot of considerations regarding, hey, how do we maintain them? How do we sustain them? How do we continue to, to, to turn sorties and load them up with weapons? We can figure that out. Fourth generation aircraft were by design meant to be easy to fly. And we can definitely train them to employ the weapons fairly quickly. They are in an existential crisis, an existential war. They don't need to know the logic. They don't need to be able to mentally build them. They don't have to be able to draw the systems from memory. They need to be able to fly the aircraft, be able to handle basic emergencies and employ the weapons. We don't even need to teach them Western tactics. Let them continue to use their, their old Soviet tactics, innovate in the battle space, but we need to send them air power. Well, I mean, one of the reasons, right, they're proving to be uh, successful, Heather, is that, that they're using sort of Western tactics. They know the Russian playbook, so they're really uh, amalgamating um, some of these capabilities. Let me just ask you just one last um, yeah. uh, air defense question, right? Uh, and I mentioned this uh, last week. I mentioned it on a couple of other programs, so I'm, I'm not necessarily, I don't work for the Royal United Services Institute, but Dr. Jack Wattling made a great point, uh, right? The, the land uh, power uh, expert there mm -hmm. who joined us on the program a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Jack's fabulous. He just does incredible work, uh, and the whole team there does. And Justin Bronk, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole the whole bunch does uh, a great job. But they are amazing. Uh, um, the the point that Jack was making was that look, the Russians really are starting to dial in their air defenses, and so they shot down one of the Ukrainian jets at like something like 112 kilometers at like 50 feet off the ground. Right, that's pretty impressive shot to be making. You know, how do you counter that? The kind of capabilities the Russians are fielding is making it very, very hard, uh, right? I mean, driving the war to, you know, much more of sort of a ground pounding conflict, you know, the, the psalm of the 21st century, if you will. Exactly. And, and I'm not going to walk the, the listeners through um, a recipe on how you counter S-400s and so forth. But what we need to understand is, is they're not 10 feet tall. There are ways to be able to take out these, uh, these air defenses. Uh, they are, the Russians are adapting, they are getting better, but at the same time, they're also losing a lot of their initially trained force. So we're seeing a mix of capabilities in Ukraine regarding operators that are very savvy and very competent with the, the weapon system and operators that are not probably using it on automatic mode. So similar to how we've seen our defenses be used, for example, in Vietnam, where certain sites were very lethal and other sites were not, we need to understand that this is not that the S-400s are not being used and employed 
at a hundred percent of their capability at a hundred percent of their sites at a hundred percent of the time. There are gaps. There are ways to get around this. And frankly, the Ukrainians are very smart. So we need to empower them to explore and exploit ways to be able to take down these air defenses. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we equip them and we equip them with the right things. How do we use cyber? How do we use electronic warfare? How do we use the RPAs? How do we use fighters? How do we integrate them together in unique and creative ways that can show the way and, and begin to establish uh, uh, pockets, bubbles, and windows of opportunity where we can then employ air power the way that it's meant? Um, JJ, do you have a, a follow-up question before we get to the, the big uh, balloon buster event of the week? Well, the only thing I will say is that we expect to be talking about close-in aviation on some subsequent episodes of the Air Power podcast, because as our headline item regarding Japan getting out of the helicopter business indicates, people are drawing very different conclusions from observing the fight in Ukraine and what it's like to operate at low level in a modern air defense environment. Um, in, in, indeed, there are. And I would point out, right, I mean, when you talk to veteran uh, Army aviators and Army aviation leaders, they say, look, I mean, we fundamentally don't would not be operating our airplanes the way uh, the Russians are operating them uh, with the vulnerabilities. We would have a much more in a combined arms uh, capacity, even though there are those who make the case that will look something like a Gray Eagle uh, and long endurance uh, unmanned systems with weapons on them is, uh, you know, integral to that future uh, Army aviation force, something I think most Army aviation leaders also would, would agree to. Heather, do you want to chime in on that at all before we go to the great balloon discussion of the week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons why um, I think people are, are shying away or, or might be learning certain lessons like, oh, we, we're not going to do helicopters anymore is because the way that the U.S. Army employs our helicopters, they depend upon the Air Force to provide them air superiority and air dominance. And part of what we do is suppression of enemy air defenses and destruction of enemy air defenses. So helicopters, yes, they do have to take into consideration when we employ them in the Western style, small arms and man pads and things like that, but they don't have to worry about the other threats that the Ukrainians are facing right now. So we need to be careful when we're looking at Ukraine. First of all, we're a little too soon to really learn long lasting lessons. I think right now we need to have some observations, but we also need to understand the context within which that's occurring and how that applies to doctrine. So it's it's a more sophisticated question. People are jumping to conclusions, I think. Uh, and and indeed, right. I mean, there's a reason why uh, the Army calls it future vertical lift for the future long range assault aircraft and the FARA, the future armed reconnaissance uh, aircraft, uh, right, in, in terms of kind of the capabilities that they will need uh, for uh, the future. Uh, both airplanes, right, looking at greater speed than anything that is currently uh, in the inventory. Okay, let's get to uh, the balloon discussion, right? Um, this was Montgolfier meeting modernity, right? The F-22 world's most combat, uh, uh, you know, capable combat, advanced combat aircraft shooting down the oldest of aeronautical technology, even though the Chinese seem to have updated it uh, rather significantly. I mean, we're talking about a 120-foot uh, diameter envelope, uh, which means that, you know, you can carry a pretty hefty payload. Uh, Beijing said it was a weather balloon. The United States is saying it was a reconnaissance balloon. Uh, and gee, wouldn't you know it, it flew over uh, missile fields in Montana. It flew over, you know, the, you know, pretty much all of America's uh, missile bases. It also managed to drift past America's uh, stealth bomber base. 
there are folks who uh, appear to have looked at this and said, it's just a balloon. It doesn't get you anything more than the Chinese can't do with reconnaissance satellites of their own, with ground-based sensors they're employing, with cyber operations. And so it was allowed to go over the country because there would be a big debris field if shot down. We shot it down rather than when it first entered American airspace off the Atlantic coast. Uh, there are others who've suggested we wanted to monitor it and we were monitoring it to sort of see what it was up to uh, over, over the course of doing this. From your standpoint, uh, Heather, as, as you've studied this sort of stuff, what are the merits of a balloon, even if it's observable uh, and potentially vulnerable, right? Because the Chinese really have been investing in, quote, near space capabilities. And there is a concern that this sort of fell, that we, we detected it, but we said, nah, it's just a balloon. Well, you know, Vago, I think what's interesting is we detected this one and we reacted to this one. But as news came out, we've discovered that we actually detected previous balloons and then and didn't respond to them at all. When you when you overlay that with Van Herc's response that uh, regarding Northcom, that there's a domain awareness gap here. That's really interesting to me because with the other previous reporting that we've seen uh, detected uh, balloons but not necessarily from the combatant commander side, that what that potentially implies is a lack of coordination among um, national intelligence agencies and the combatant commanders. That's really more of where the concern that I have comes. Um, we can talk more about the merits of a balloon and, and uh, that a balloon might not necessarily be as reflective for a radar, that it might uh, be able to fall um, beneath sort of the threshold where a Doppler radar would uh, would really say, hey, that's something interesting we need to look at. I do think that balloons complicate the, the problem set for, for anybody, especially when they're um, up higher from where your manned assets are typically going to be able to fly. And, and anytime you provide more different kinds of things, you create more tools in your toolkit per se, you, again, you complicate your adversary's problem set and you provide more resiliency to your ability to collect through all those different systems. So I can understand why the Chinese are pursuing balloons. And again, because as, as you noted, they're saying, hey, it's just a weather balloon. Well, we've had weather balloons for over a century. So this makes sense. This would not trigger anyone typically. So they have a, a plausible cover for deniability um, and it does actually complement the rest of their collection assets. This system appears to have been sent over to be a collector, to gather imagery, in, signals, whatever else. We'll find out a lot more about that when we get it out of the water. But at what point does the system itself become a target for intelligence, for how we can characterize it for future detection, how we can see what it's trying to transmit or how it's trying to transmit? Does the hunter become the hunted? JJ, absolutely. Um, by by listening, um, by observing, and um, as General Van Herc and we've heard other military officials say, there are also ways to prevent it from transmitting as well. So now that uh, now that we actually have the asset and can further exploit that, I think that that will be very valuable to our intelligence um, and understanding what Chinese capabilities actually are. Was there, um, Heather, an advantage to not having shot it down? I mean, was there some, right? I mean, there there were airplanes around this, um, at least the, the uh, reporting is that, you know, I mean, there were airplanes circling this thing from the moment it entered American airspace, right? So I mean, it was not as if it was just sort of 
cruising around completely unmonitored. You know, what was there advantage to letting it drift around the country and collect on it in a way that we might have we might have been able to learn a thing or two in the process? Or was there a message that it should have been shot down just to show that we won't tolerate something like this entering? Because I think this is the first time that um, an unauthorized reconnaissance craft that we know of entered U.S. airspace, went through U.S. airspace, and and it was eventually shot down, right? Open Skies does it all the time. There may have been other airplanes that have spied on us, right? A Russian airplane with cameras in its belly that we didn't know about. But, you know, sort of your sense on that. Well, Vago, you bring up two contrasting points, right? Um, on one hand, what's the appropriate signaling to say that that our airspace is sovereign and thou shalt not enter um, unless we uh, know and concur? And then is there value towards the, on the collection side? And so I think, I think on one hand, from the open source side, we don't know what we don't know regarding the decision making uh, and the decision process, the most senior levels, what they would get, um, what the benefit to our nation would be to, uh, of allowing that to continue to uh, to fly drift through the airspace versus immediately shooting it down. I do think though that the um, the media brouhaha, although it initially looked like a black eye on uh, on the administration, did send a clear signal to China that this was unwelcome and likely would not be tolerated in the future. Heather, the United States has studied the use of aerostats and long-endurance, lighter-than-air aircraft for a variety of missions, comms relay, ISR, more battlefield-oriented tasks generally. But why would someone choose to use a platform at this altitude as opposed to a satellite or an aircraft? Why would the Chinese send a balloon in the first place? Well, JJ, first let's talk about why that why that particular altitude? I mean, we as the United States have pursued um, those higher altitudes, the 60s, the 70s, and so uh, 70,000 feet above the earth, because not only can it evade radars, um, depending on how high they're looking. So remember, that's all angular. um, And it can reduce the power uh, of the return, but it can also evade the maximum altitude of the threats, right? Much more difficult to target at those higher altitudes. And then just simply from line of sight from that collection altitude, it allows you to see so much more than you would if you were at a lower altitude of a conventional aircraft, say 36,000 feet. You can also sniff more signals, get greater fidelity in in details and granularity uh, regarding uh, imagery there's less, uh, a little bit less distortion in the atmospherics uh, for other types of intel collection. So I wouldn't say that it's better. I would say it complements the various means that we might have or any nation might have to collect. So there's a, there's a, it's just a unique space uh, that can, again, complement uh, your broader collection strategy. And because it's a balloon that looks like every other balloon, you don't necessarily know its function in the way that you do looking at a particular aircraft. Is that part of the calculation? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, weather balloons are something that meteorologists use all the time, um, especially as we're trying to understand those higher atmospherics and improve the weather, weather modeling for the civilian and commercial world. So, um, so that's something that, that's fairly routine. Um, Also, balloons, because they travel at the speed of wind, 
and, and the materials that they're made up of really are not going to be either as reflective or as fast as a traditional aircraft. And therefore, they're not going to necessarily trigger the logic of a lot of radar systems. Uh, again, I mean, right, one of the reasons uh, we have U2s uh, is they operate at 70,000 feet. You have a nice size camera. You can take amazing pictures. And I think that, you know, once you're at 70,000 feet, your field division is 450 miles roughly in all, uh, all directions, right? Um, so you don't necessarily have to fly right over Whiteman. You could get a pretty good look at it uh, or missile fields or, or what have you, right? And there's been some yeah. speculation that this could have been a more accurate meteorological data, targeting data and, and the like. And of course, you know, it could be leaving leave behinds as well, right? Ejecting uh, small payloads. Uh, that we haven't yet found. I mean, I'm not trying to get hairs running. There's just, you know, could, could do a lot uh, with something of, of that kind of payload. Let me ask you this question, right? Because there's a little bit of you and JJ are saying slightly different things about, and, and, and there's things that we just don't know in this gap, right? Like whether we detected it and we're tracking it, did we detect it in other ways? Why didn't we do this sooner in, in terms, right? Because it looks like the president heard about it on Tuesday, Wednesday, made the decision, shoot it down whenever possible, to, possible safely. And that that conclusion was uh, once, once it got over the ocean. And I know JJ's got a couple of questions he wants to ask you about the technical stuff here. From your standpoint, what does this episode teach us about how to think about uh, aerial threats, including innovative ones? And about China as a potential adversary, right? Because we keep coming to this thing of, you know, one would have thought that this would have really galvanized that. Uh, and it's a Chinese balloon. Let's shoot it down. Uh, and there appeared to be, yeah, it's probably not It's probably not doing anything serious. I mean, we don't know what it was doing, right? I mean, thankfully, we have the wreckage to investigate it. How do we need to be thinking differently? What are the gaps and seams? And how do we need to think about our adversary and how creative they can be? Well, I, I think, Vaga, you hit on the noggin is that China and the PLA are very creative um, and they're investing and they're moving fast and they're continuously experimenting, pushing the envelope, seeing what they can get away with and sort of pushing, testing the boundaries with what they can do against the U.S. systems. So they're constantly reconnoitering, they're constantly experimenting, they're constantly innovating. Their, um, their cycle is, is fast and that is very concerning. So what are the gaps and seams? Not just necessarily just within uh, capabilities. Uh, I think this should be a place where we, we pause, we take a look, kind of a pre-9-11 moment, if you will, and say, okay, uh, how, are, how is our intelligence community uh, supporting our defense community? Um, so we know that we've, we've moved forward and I think done a lot of really good work sort of on the, the anti-terrorism side, the counter-terrorism side, but what are we doing within traditional defense circles to more tightly integrate our intelligence collection and analysis and dissemination and actually connect that dissemination piece to the operators, to the warfighters, to the COCOMs? You know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is I love Intel. They're super smart, you know, and, and they are very jealously protective of their methods and means and understandably so because they don't want to reveal that right but oftentimes what that means is that operators don't have access to the intelligence because the intel community is concerned that it may betray those methods and means and so i think this is an indication of where maybe we need to re-examine 
um, and reconnect uh, the intelligence community and the broader defense community, especially the COCOMs, if that's where we discover the scene was. JJ? Heather, we're going to let you take your analyst hat off for a moment and put the green bag back on. You've noted that this is a target that's very difficult to detect and to paint, maybe to lock. The F-22s of Frank Flight had a lot of support. There were at least two KC-135s and a KC-46 in the air, squawking, making their presence no secret. There was also reportedly a rivet joint involved at the scene, likely some other platforms we don't know about. As a pilot in that sequence, when does it stop being about the team and all this off-board information you're getting and become a matter of you, your aircraft, and your AIM-9X? <laughs> right before you hit the pickle button, JJ. <laughs> you know, um, no one wanted to see this fail. We knew it was a, it had to be a one-shot kill. So I'm not going to throw any rocks at it. They were throwing the kitchen sink at this thing, right? They wanted to make sure that we had as many angles, as many looks um, at this as possible. And the AIM-9X was the perfect weapon to do this. And the F-22 was the perfect jet to do this because of how high it can get, the sophistication of its radar, um, the way that other systems were feeding it. And frankly, the AIM-9X with its imaging seeker was the perfect weapon to do it because of the other things that we talked about, that the balloons are pretty tricky. You know, you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, go saddle up, if you will, in a good guns position and just gun the snot out of that balloon. It ain't going to happen. That's just not how those <laughs> physics and that geometry works. Um, so and I love the fact that they were Frank flight, but there was no way they were going to be, be able to Frank Luke this. So it was, I, I, I think they did a great job. And in terms of trying to pre-plan where the, the package came down with the least amount of destruction so they could later exploit it, um, as well as avoid all the collateral damage that they were, they were talking about. You know, the minute that it went feet wet, they shot it down. So I think we'll find that the package had as minimal damage as possible. I mean, it's still hitting it at max, maximum velocity, but it's not hitting um, quite the same way it would on the, the North Dakota farmland. So, so just really quickly, I mean, right, I made the case, why don't you just perforate the envelope and then bring it down somewhat more slowly as opposed to having it drop like a bag of hammers from uh, or, 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 or the gondola of a big Chinese spy balloon into the water, which I don't think is any softer, by the way, when you hit it from 60,000 feet from the ground. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been uh, right. It's, I mean, it's, the water is pretty, pretty hard. hard. But, <laughs> but, but could I suppose, you I suppose it, we, we should ask cosmonauts versus the, the uh, you know, Apollo Gemini guys. <laughs> Uh, that, that's the right. difference. Co cosmonauts say that it was <laughs> actually that... a pretty, pretty cushy ride given the retro motors. Anyway, the gun run, <laughs> could you have, could you have gun run this? I mean, you said you can't Frank Luke this. Could you have gun run it and perforated I, the envelope I, I, to bring it down more slowly? Do you even have the control authority? Well, the F-22 would be the only jet that would really be able to do that, um, at that altitude with that, with, with control authority. But I'll tell you, it's still pretty darn thin air up there. And the, the closure rates between an F-22 and a balloon that's just kind of going along with the air mass is not going to give you much time to be able to get sufficient holes in, in the balloon, as you as you noted earlier, Vago, to, to be able to bring it down softly. So it would take a number of runs and it would, honestly, it would be, it would be very hard. I mean, we know this. I mean, we, we, we know that shooting down balloons is hard to do, whether or not that's from World War I onwards. 
So uh, up at 70,000 feet, 63,000 feet, whatever it was at, is, is that still up high there in the, in the rare air it would still be very difficult to do. Uh, indeed. J- JJ, last question for uh, Heather. Well, the last thing I have to ask is, Lucky, how much would you have wanted to be the pilot pulling the trigger on this one? <laughs> JJ, everyone wanted to be the pilot pulling the trigger on this one. As much as we might be ribbing the Raptor community for their first kill being a balloon, I'll tell you what, everyone would have wanted to go pull the trigger on this one. Not only because it's cool to kill a balloon, but honestly, I think every red-blooded fighter pilot was offended by the fact that we allowed China to go through our airspace, to violate our airspace. Yeah. And, uh, and my sentiment is uh, exactly that, right? I think um, that we should have been more vigilant. We should have brought it down sooner uh, unless there was a really good reason that folks after the fact can say, we were jamming this, uh, you know, it, it didn't have control. It may have had a degree of autonomy. That's hard autonomy to do. It's one heck of a coincidence that it flew over all the missile, you know, F.E. Warren. I mean, it right. It went over the missile bases. It went over uh, Whiteman, whoever the meteorologist. I mean, if this was a meteorological shot and it was not controlled, that's great. And even then, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. They still managed to get it over some of our most sensitive sites. And it just, well, you know, to me, yeah. sends a problematic message but Vago, i think it's i would be very interested to compare uh the wind patterns at that altitude with the flight path of the balloon um i would not be surprised to discover that they had some means to be able to steer the balloon because as you said the uncanny way that it, it went by all of our sites yeah it, it was i think more than somewhat coincidental <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, no, but, you know, no, to, to, to bring it back though, Vago, I mean, it's like, yeah, no, you're right. If you're going to, if you're going to hit um, at, uh, at, at terminal velocity, it's probably not going to matter, matter whether or not it's South Dakota farmland or, or the Atlantic ocean. Um, so if this was the first time that, that we had really characterized this balloon as an intelligence collection asset, I can understand why they'd want to know what is it doing? What kind of sensors do the Chinese have? What have they packed in here? And the only way to do that is going to be to observe it. And then you have to let it go for a little while um, before you before you shoot it down. Uh, so, a- again, we don't know what we don't know. But, man, I'm mad as hell. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I, th- I think that that uh, goes uh, for a lot of people and, again, underscores uh, how innovative our adversary uh, is, how methodical they are. And again, a great story in the New York Times, I think, that ran uh, a couple of days ago that actually framed, right, these kind of balloons have been seen over Taiwan, uh, elsewhere in the world, right? At the time we were going through this drama, uh, there was one flying over Latin America that apparently was scuttled. Uh, so it may have demolition charges or may have some capacity there to bring the balloon down uh, at the time in place of, uh, of uh, Beijing's choosing. JJ, got anything else before we sign off for the week? Only to thank her for her expertise and her combination of analytical skill and real-world practical experience with the pickle button. Sorry, maybe you'll get to shoot down the next one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I keep telling the Air Force I'm ready to come back. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Have a great Uh, aerospace power kind of day. uh, Thanks, uh, Heather. Absolute (laughs) pleasure having you on the program. Really appreciate it. Keep aiming high. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind of airplanes I'm flying nowadays. 
Hey, hey, any airplane's a good airplane. That's the way I look at That's it. That's right. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.